from being in a maximum security jail with cockroaches crawling all over me at night time, the gang infested, people's heads getting bashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around, teeth knocked out. Never imagined I'd be going all across the country speaking to school kids. Hi, welcome to Real Talk. I'm Eleanor Conway and this month's theme is masculinity. As a person with an addictive personality type, the thing that probably saved my life was to learn I can channel my energy into positive things. There's nothing wrong with getting addicted to positive things. To billionaire Sean Atwood. Sean joins me here at Hipster Shoreditch House to discuss his time in one of America's toughest jails. Please, can you put your hands together for Mr. Sean Atwood? Thank you. Thanks for coming. Oh, good to go. Right, so you basically, where are you? you're from Cheshire, aren't you? A little town in between Liverpool and Manchester in Cheshire, yep. Cool. And where does the story start? Well, my interest in the stock market started at 14. Yeah. When I started, um, my economics teacher gave me classes on my own, explained mm -hmm. how to read the Financial Times. 16, I borrowed 50 quid off my nan, doubled it in British Telecom shares. And that was it then. I was just telling all my mates in my little town, I'm going to America, I'm going to make a million. I'm going to fly all you guys over. Socially, what kind of person are you? All right, socially, I went through anxiety as a teenager. Yeah. And before the rave scene, I wouldn't get up and dance. I wouldn't go up and talk to women. I wouldn't talk to people. And that anxiety was compounded by almost getting beat to death by some drunks. But then the rave scene started and I took ecstasy and all that anxiety just melted away. But I didn't feel like I was an interesting enough person to be around then unless I was high for over 10 years. And I just got deeper and deeper into the drug world. And is this in the UK or is this... Is this in, is I started this... out as a participant in the rave scene when it started in this country. Yeah. And then when I went to America, because it made such a big impression on me, yeah. I tried to transfer that scene over to the States when I made money in the stock market. So what, um, what, sort of, what year is this? Sort of like mid-90s? <coughs> I graduated 1990, went to America 1991. I was just, had my student credit card to survive on. I wasn't making much money. But five years in as a stockbroker, is the next one the stockbroker, I um, was making half a million a year. So I had enough money to retire. I'm only in my 20s and I've got no common sense. Mm. I'm emotionally immature. That money just goes straight to my head. And then the next thing I'm throwing parties. Well, it started out as house parties. I'm showing off, buying everybody drugs. Yeah, because you want people to like you, I understand that. And if you give drugs away for free, you get a lot of friends. Of course. <laughs> and then it, I start to put my business studies degree to use then. I see the... You know, the, the business, money yeah, the money business making... potential of ecstasy. Well, yeah, of course, the money-making elements of, you know, of, mm -hmm. of drug dealing. Yeah. On a small scale and then sort of moving it up to a larger scale. And I suppose mm -hmm. in that market, you're over, you know, the club scene wasn't what it was in the UK. So you can transfer what you knew from the UK to there. And all of a sudden, you're the only fish, I guess. Well, we could get pills out of Holland for a couple of dollars. And the street price in America was 25 to $30. Well, there you go. That's amazing. Yeah. I got in with the local people, and because yeah. I was the money guy, they started calling me the Bank of England. <laughs> <laughs> and in the beginning, I was just buying like 50, 100 pills from, from me and my mates. Yeah. Started selling some on the side, and, and, and they just went like that. So I asked the local dealers, can you get more pills? And they were like, no. So I found out they were getting them out of LA. Yeah. I started getting two to 5,000 at a time out of LA. That's all they could do. Yeah. But as it got bigger, we needed more. And I sent people to, to Holland, and then I could bring 
people back in one trip could bring like 30, 40,000 pills in from Holland. When you're sort of building your drug empire, what yeah. was going on? You'd already made a, like quite a bit of money from your your stock marketing days. That's and the thing, I didn't even need to be doing the drugs. So what drove it? Was it I was, ego? I, had, I was worth two million in the stock market. Right. But when you go from being this shy person in the UK yeah. to suddenly throwing these parties for up to 10,000 people, got your own bouncers running around. Oh, what a People thrill. are coming up to you, hugging you all night long and you're in your 20s. It's just like a big ego trip. I, the attention was more addictive than anything else. Yeah. So how much time is it between the, the initial party party, everything's sexy and luxury and all that, and it's sexy and sort of high octane to, you know, the SWAT team banging on your door? Okay, so the biggest uh, rave stuff I went in the UK was 89, 1991. Moved to America then, mm -hmm. settled down in the stock market, and then all my stuff got reactivated in the mid-90s. By 97, I'm starting to get dealing the ecstasy. Um, 2000 and May 16, 2002 is when the SWAT team came. Yeah. And I, I'd actually quit mm. dealing because I met a woman and she talked me out of it a year before, but I was still going out on the weekends getting high because I couldn't stop my own addiction. Sure. And that's how they caught me was phone calls. They listened to phone calls around that time. Right. So it's almost like if you'd have... If you'd have quit when you got into that sort of relationship, it would everything would have been fine. There wouldn't have been a. I don't know because ten witness statements came forward beginning about ninety-seven, mm. so they were on to us anyway. So I think something probably would have happened anyway. Sure, but because you were still at, acting in, a, in an addictive way, even though that gave more evidence to get me. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a matter of time, really, at that point. I thought they had to catch you with the drugs, which is not the case. Mm. All it takes under the statute of limitations in Arizona is someone from the past seven years to say that you sold drugs to them and they've got you. All right, let's just go on to the prison stuff. So can you remember the fear that you felt when you were walking in? Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. You're like the fresh meat, fresh fish they call you. And everyone just comes to the plexiglass windows on either side of the corridor and they're just looking at you like, like you know, they're going to eat you or something. Yeah. Um, they want to know if you're bringing drugs in is the main thing. Because they want the drugs. Yeah, yeah. If you ever held a little animal, yeah. ding, 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 ding. Even at night, you get a skinny mattress to sleep on. My heart's just going like all night long. So my, my first couple of nights, I couldn't even sleep. And the prisoners come up to me and they say, you've got to get that look of shock off your face or else you're going to get preyed on. And so in, in the jail that you've been held in, so you've gone from your like posh penthouse in Scottsdale. Yep. Which you've been living with your girlfriend, living the high life, still partying. The next, you know, within a matter of minutes, you're carted off to like these, this other sort of holding cells. Yeah. What sort of people are in that holding cell? Oh, the holding cells, it's complete chaos. Um, everyone's sardined in, like 30, 40 people. You're all like just trying to get a space to sit. And people are high, people are drunk, because they're all <laughs> the fresh arrestees. Some of them have been tasered by the police. Some have been shot by the police. Um, and what, what's the energy like in that space? Absolutely, just chaotic. People are having fights, there's blood on the walls, guards are running in, grabbing people, pulling them out. People who act up, they get put in a, it's called a restraint chair in the right. corridor. These people in restraint chairs, it looks like a medieval torture device. It's like a black tilted chair. They put you in there and they put, then they put a hood on your head as well to stop you from spitting on, on the staff. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I guess I guess I guess you must have been quite exhilarated by that. It must have been quite like a buoyant sort of dramatic, not you not really know what's gonna happen next. The people who got arrested in SWAT team raids in my case, the first group got arrested at the same time as me. Okay. So we were all in there. So must you must have, how did you feel at that point? Are you feeling quite like this is 
I'm what? shitting myself, but my friends were protecting me. So, yes, you don't care. You're, you're like, you've got your buddies. No, I do care. I'm absolutely crapping it because um, my theory was if I ever got arrested, my mate's going to um, bail me out. Right. I didn't want my parents to find out. Right. Police were smarter than me and they just arrested me and all my friends on the same day. Shit. So, you're like, your biggest fear, you're like, one of your fears, I suppose, at the back of your mind is, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have, my parents are going to find out yeah. and I'm going to let them down. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you're, so, you know, fast forward a couple of days, you're walking into this scary environment. Yeah. And does the penny drop? Does well, it, does the kind of. I'm in shock, really. You're in shock. Yeah. As you walk into the jail, you get, you get targeted by the Aryan Brotherhood. They bring you into a separate cell. And what happens there? For like, what are your charges? And I'm new to this. I've read my charges. They're on a little sheet. Mm. But I don't understand the legal terminology. Mm. So I say to them, I don't understand my charges. And they're like, what do you mean you don't understand your charges? You a chomo? You a chomo? So like, they got me up against the walls. They're about to smash me. I don't know what a chomo is either. Yeah. So chomo is child molester. In the end, I pull my sheet out and show them and they leave me alone. Mm. So some charges are KOS by the gang, which means kill on sight, such as sex offences or crimes against women or, or children. You're going to get at least get a beat down. Yeah. They, they explain the rules. And what were the rules? So you can't sit with the other races or else they'll smash you. If someone calls you a punk, a bitch or hits you, you've got to fight them on the spot or else they'll smash you. Right. You've got to take showers or else they'll smash you. Can't go make your friends with the guards or else they'll smash you. Right. Just goes on and on and on. Right. So the rules of the the rules of the of your new environment are everything probably in opposite to what your rule system was before. Yeah. It's about isolating yourself based on race. Plus the guards have got all their rules and they're in conflict with the rules that the gang. And what are the guards the guards' rules? Guards' rules are um, stuff like you can't trade with other prisoners. You can't carry things around a prison for other prisoners. All the things the prisoners are doing, the guards, <laughs> the guards, it's all the opposite. So you're, so you're damned if you do, you're damned if you yeah, don't. It's yeah, like you're yeah. like, yeah, if you try and not piss the guards off, then you're pissing your race off. Yep. Wow. And so like, what, how are the races brought, like broken down in that environment? Whites, blacks, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, four major gangs in Arizona. Hang on, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans? Yep. That's a, okay. They're at war with each other. Why is that? What's the... They've been at war with each other in the Arizona prison system since the 1990s. So you, your prison time was split into two sections, wasn't it? So this initial like, uh, prison was until you got... You okay, were with all your two, mates, the, weren't you? The two sections are my unsentenced time, right. which was 26 months, right. and then my sentenced time, which was the balance of the total just under six years that I served. Okay. So the first, the first, the first stretch of time, you were with other people that you knew, right? First year, co-defendants were in the jail. Because, oh, I mean, I would have been brutalised. It's raw survival of the fittest. If I had gone in there on my own, heaven help me. But because I had some big people with me, some of my bouncers from the rave parties, yeah. I had some back. So you had a social, you had a, some semblance of some kind of social network that you yes. could rely on in that environment? Yes. And uh, who, were your, who were your cellmates at that time? The jail was such a transitory environment. My cellmates... Um, differed constantly. Right. It was after I was sentenced, my cellmates then were more, it was more of a long-term thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, dealing with fear, as you, like, how did you deal with becoming more confident in that environment or getting rid of the fearful face that Here's you had Here's the thing, on? right. Okay, so I, was, I had anxiety as a teenager. Sure. I took drugs for over 10 years um, to mask my insecurity and my anxiety. Then all of a sudden I'm sober 
and I'm in an environment which is 10 times worse than anything I could have possibly imagined oh as God. an anxious person to be in. So there's a theory that if you're afraid of something, don't hide from it. Confront your fears. I was forced to confront my fear. So to, for me now, the world is a safer place than yeah. the anxious person I was because I've gone through this and it, the world just seems completely safe. I mean, some things are still with me. Like if I go to a restaurant, I prefer to sit with my back against the wall. Right. But still a bit institutionalized from this because I feel safer. But in general, I'm just a, ha a much happier person now because I appreciate what, what I've got and I feel safer in, in, in the outside world. So talk to me like mentally, like how your mental state changed. Like I can't imagine getting, so I mean, I've gotten sober, but I've gotten sober in Shoreditch, not in pain, <clears throat> not in a maximum security prison yeah. in, a, in a foreign country with loads of other murderers around me. Like There's various stages of adaptation. Yeah. So in the beginning, I'm in shock and the prisoners are coming up to me saying, get that look off your face. Yeah. Six months in, I've got dead eyes which means it's a look in prison where you're just completely unemotional. You don't want to show mm. any emotion because it's going to get preyed on. You know, so by now, I'm used to the sounds of heads getting smashed against toilets, mm. bodies getting thrown around. I've seen people just fighting, teeth just getting knocked out and bouncing on the floor. I've seen one guy get smashed in the shower, looked like he was dead. He got carried out on a stretcher. It wasn't just blood coming out of his head. There was yellow sure. fluid, like brain stuff. There was a mentally ill old man he wouldn't stop rambling all day, so the gang decided to shut him up. Oh. I'm walking past him, and blood's just squirting out the back of his head. So six months in, the violence is nearly every day. I've got dead eyes because all this has happened around me constantly because you can't show any emotion. By now, I've learned the prison slang. I'm doing the prison walk. And I'm doing everything I possibly can to try and fit in. So that's where I am in, in, the, in, the, in the adaptation stage. So you had that sort of glazed eyes you went in. So that's, I mean... Obviously, you stick out a mile. You are English in... Yeah, uh, and they, they love that. Did they? Yeah. What did they say? Were they like, You're a goddamn limey cousin from across the pond. I bet you know the Spice Girls and you have tea and crumpets with the Queen and all this <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I was thankful for all things that had gone international English, like Benny Hill, Faulty Towers, oh. Monty Python. They loved the fact that I was English. And what happened was, two or three months after my arrest, I was the cover story of a newspaper. Right. And that infamy lasted about three or four months where I was getting extra cheese, cheese slices and extra milks with the breakfast and stuff like that. Do you think that helped you out, that little bit of infamy? In a good way? If you look at the prison hierarchy, yeah. people at the top will be like a mafia guy who'd murdered rival gangsters. Yeah. And then you got all the drug criminals that are the, are the vast majority. And the lower people at the lowest are the... Um, snitches and sex offenders so as a drug offender when the media put that article about me and it was hyped up 10 times what i'd done yeah, of course that yeah that went a long way with building a rep with the prisoners sure if i'd have gone in there on my own i would have been brutalized because so many people arrested with me yeah. i was able to res resist the gang pressures and just stay in my cell reading and writing I tried to turn it into the education opportunity of a lifetime. Okay, so you tried to turn something. I mean, this is the point where you're expect you're 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 facing two hundred years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of reading. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> in just under six years, I managed to read over a thousand books. In 2006, I read 268 books. And I read a lot of the original texts in philosophy and psychology. And they enabled me to go inside myself mm. and address the root causes of why I'd gotten involved in drugs. The way that you succeeded and the way that you moved forward and kind of befriended quite a lot of um, like prominent people within um, jail yeah. was by helping them. Mm-hmm. and to read and write and get their story out and, and yeah. do all that stuff. Yeah. You know, you smuggled out your story uh, mm-hmm. via your legal papers that, you, that your aunt was coming to deliver to you, yep. didn't she? And, yeah. then, it, and then the, the secret blog, which was John's Jail Journal, got picked up by The Guardian and then mm-hmm. everyone knew your story and then mm-hmm. that led to some like, a, a, like book deals when you left like, jail and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so... If a rule system is built around quite a masculine set of rules, you know, you've got to beat people up, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're going to quite tough people and helping them out with quite sort of vulnerable points that they don't know how to do, how to read, how to write and do all that stuff. Was there not a risk there? So then I'm coming under the umbrella of their toughness so I don't have to be tough myself. Okay. So, for example, when I got separated from my co-defendants after the remand period... Yeah. First off, prosecutor, she pulled a, a trick on me where she put my sentence accident, accidentally down as 34 years. And it was nine and a half. So I got fast-tracked to supermax. My neighbor's a serial killer. My cellmate is a Satanist. Got a satanic pentagram tattooed on his forehead. Wow. In for murder, part of a cult that was drinking blood and eating human body parts. And he was actually very nice to me. But, Probably because he thought you looked tasty. <laughs> it took three months for my sentence to get straightened out. I got moved to medium security, didn't know anyone, got the guards play a prank on me, moving in with a serial home invader torturer. He's um, breaking into people's houses, taking hammers to their kneecaps. And welcoming statement to me is I've got a padlock in a sock, I can smash your brains in while you sleep, I can kill you whenever I want. So he didn't like me from the get-go. He knew my family were flying 5,000 miles to visit me for Christmas, so he got his mate this huge bike had to smash me when my mum and dad had come over to see me for Christmas. I didn't come out well, very well, and that I got smashed, knocked down. Mum's asking why I'm all injured and stuff, and I can't say. And it was after that then, my new cellmate introduced me to a mafia mass murderer who he knew could protect me. Two Tonys were serving over 140 years. Yeah. He'd only murdered rival gangsters, not women or kids, yeah. which put him at the top of the respect in the prison. So he had morals within the... That's what he said, it was a crime of integrity. And he was looking for someone to write his life story, so I was his official biographer. <laughs> so I'm sneaking into his cell every day. He's got guard, um, prisoners posted outside watching for guards. People are coming over to pay their respect to him. He's like Uncle Junior character, but he's already done 30 plus years. And um, the respect starts to rub off on me, and I don't get smashed again after that. What, what led to the introduction? Why, we, why did he think that you'd be a good match for this guy, this Tony's, Tony's guy? So I got this new cellmate who... It's, it's so bizarre, like people come out the blue to hurt me and people come out the blue to help me. My new cellmate had come from Supermax and the last thing, the last conversation he'd had in Supermax was with a guy who said to him, if you see an English dude called English Sean, I did business with him in the rave scene, he's a good dude, look out for him. There's 60,000 people in the Arizona prison system. So for this to happen, I was like, Providence or something. So he ends up my cellmate. Whoa. That guy ends up my cellmate after getting told by this guy, look out for the English dude. Now, I don't know he's been told any of this yet to look out for me. 
We're so just... you're, you're shitting yourself. It's like yeah, because you guys... he's all tatted out. He looks like oh, an Aryan Brotherhood dude. I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. So I'm almost trying to get out the cell. So again, with this guy, and um, I'm thinking, oh, shit. I'm trying to get him out the cell. And um, anyway, once I get to know him and he starts telling me things about him, I like him. And he says, I want to introduce you to someone. And I don't know. He's looking out for me yet still. And you're like, oh, God. Yeah, I am, oh, God. Because I'm like, who? He says, my friend, I want you to play chess with my friend. I'm like, okay. Two Tonys, what's he in for? Oh, mass murder, he's doing 140 years. <laughs> I'm like, hold on a minute. Do I really want to play chess with this guy, you know? Yeah. If I win... Do you let him win? Do you let him lose? That's it. If I win, he might not like me. If I, if I let him win, he's going to see through that, probably, and he's going to think I'm, I'm a phony and, so what and did you not like me. what you choose to do? I chose to just play. All right. He goes off to get him. He comes, like Uncle, he comes down like Uncle Junior and he's talking... And you can see I'm shitting bricks. <laughs> so he puts me at ease right away. He's like, oh, I love the English accent. And he, he said, you know, have you ever had tea and crumpets with the Beatles, the bloody Beatles? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. And, um, and we play, and throughout this chess game, he keeps saying what he's going to do. I'm going to think about doing this, think about doing that, bada bing, bada bang. And, and, no, um, what sort of things is he saying? Like, like what he's telling me his game plan. For what? So I slaughtered him because oh, right. he's telling me what he's going to do next. Oh, I thought you meant like, oh, I'm going to go on, on holiday when I get out of here. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, this guy sounds deluded. Shall I move my bishop over there? Shall I put my knight over here? Oh, really? So I'm going to, I just slaughtered him because it was so obvious what he was going to do. He kept telling me, I don't know. He's testing me. He's doing this on purpose to see what I'm going to do. But like you just said, should I win, should I lose? Yeah. He already knows all that. He's already fought all this through. Because he's looking for someone to write his life story and he's found out I'm a writer. So he's come down and done this on purpose to test me. And hang on, has, has your John Jail, John's Jail journal... It's already journal, been in the news. It's already been in the news. He's aware so of it, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So hang on, right. So you're smuggling out these sort of like diary entries about mm -hmm. your time in the jail, like exposing the conditions. That was in the remand jail. It was smuggled out. In the prison system, they weren't hip to it yet. So I just mailed them out. Who did? Yeah. And so, and so it was infamous. So people, so were you like, were people going, hey, this cellmate, this somebody in, the, somebody in this prison is, is, is writing out and it's being covered by The Guardian, a British newspaper that's just gone online. Yeah, since some of the yeah, prisoners have had news stories sent into them about it. So like, just to go back to like the timeline, you've got fear and then you've just, then, then the second part of this timeline is about you just developing this very emotionless sort of dead eyes. Yeah. Where did that move to? Okay, the next section then is... Like I said in the beginning, yeah. there's all these gang rules and all these guards rules, but the next section is learning to play around all those rules. Okay, talk to me about that. Right, in the beginning they said to me I couldn't have friends with the other races. Right. By yeah. the end of it, I was in minimum security, where everyone's going to get out pretty soon and the gang rules are more relaxed. I had a mate called T-Bone, almost six and a half foot black guy, former Marine, trained to kill, entire body covered in scars, not just from the Marines, from all his life and death prison fight stories. He was using his skills as a US Marine to stop prison rape. Just going in and these rapists, you know, they'd, they'd stab him, they'd hit him in the head with river rocks and socks. And he was saving these kids that he didn't even know. Such a big heart, big hearted person. So he shows up at my door one day, completely blocking the sunlight out. <laughs> That's how big he was. And I'm on my little stool, I turn around, he's just got his pants on. I see his entire body covered Aww. in scars, like horseshoe sized scars, not little ones. So he starts telling me about them and he asks about English history. And I start writing his stories down and putting them on the internet. And people love, love him and uh, start, he gets pen pals and things like that. But one night he comes into my cell and he says, look, Sean, we did some blogs together, some writing. He goes, I'm going to walk the yard. 
and we get going. I'm like, well, why don't I walk the yard with you? And he says, well, because of the rules of racial division, obviously we can't do that. And I said, you're the biggest man on this yard. If you're not scared, I'm not scared. And so just in terms of like your mental state, you've gone from this sort of fear and you're facing 200 years. And is there a sense of like, oh my God, bleakness? How do you move through the bleakness of eternity in that environment? When you're facing 200 years back in the remand jail. Yeah. How do you move mentally through that? Okay, I'd been moved to maximum security when this happened. I was still, before this, I was still pining for my old lifestyle back. Didn't know anyone maximum security. The cockroaches were crawling all over me at night time oh. and I couldn't sleep. You go about four or five days without sleep and um, you start hearing things and seeing imaginary cockroaches I was. I had all these bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores. I got this pink eye infection, my eye, eyeball, eyelids have drooped down here, yellow pus is coming up my eyeball. They stopped my girlfriend from visiting me, she's my lifeline. She was coming three times a week. They've done that just to break me down psychologically. And then they say you, you're going to do, you're looking at 200 years. So I'm thinking now, I can't take it anymore. I'm just going to slash my wrists and bleed out. So I was planned to do it after a guard did a security walk, just kill myself and lay, lay there with the cockroaches. But before I was going to do it, I wanted to say goodbye to my family and friends. And what I mean by that is I was allowed seven photos in the jail, my mum, dad, girlfriend, sister. So I get these photos out and I start looking at my mum, dad and my sister. And I'm just getting really sad thinking my mum's going to get a call saying he's, your son slashed his wrist in this jail cell. And um, I just that, basically that saved my life, stopped me from doing it. So in terms of like, how did you keep saying, how did you have, find peace? Because I know, I know you, I know you're quite, you, you do like quite a lot of yoga and you meditate and all that sort of stuff. When you're facing 200 years, the pressure is so intense on your head. Mm. You're insane. Yeah. So when I got sentenced to nine and a half years, that was one of the happiest days of my life because that mm. pressure lifted. More than the gangs, the violence, the cockroaches, the heat, was the uncertainty of thinking, I'm never going to get my life back. That was the that was the hardest part of the whole thing. And once that lifted, I was yeah, like nine and a half years. First time non-violent drug offender. I'm going to, that'll be six, actually. I'm going to get out. I can see the day I'm going to get out. I went from first year pining for my lifestyle back, yeah. then adapting, and going on this program where I read over a thousand books. And I clicked up with a therapist towards the end of it. It was into neuroscience and Eastern philosophy. And the things he taught me in combined with the quotes that I brought in from the books, that stuff is still now ingrained in me and helps me just um, be a far happier person than, than I was. So since being out, you, you basically go around schools nationally giving talks to kids on drugs and you've written like about a million, a million books. You're a bestseller on the Amazon list, aren't you? Yeah, I've got two bestsellers, um, Pablo Escobar book and my Making a Merger book. And I do over 100 talks a year at schools and colleges across the country and some universities as well. And I suppose you, you must change lives, even though it's a different story because it's UK versus the US, but I'm, I'm guessing... If you go on my Twitter likes, you'll see all the feedback coming in from the kids. And sometimes I even get parents requested to meet me and they say stuff like, we're lucky if we can get a grunt off our kid when he gets home. After your talk, you wouldn't shut up about it. And it's the first time we could sit down and talk about drugs. One kid, um, one of my favorite schools was St. John the Baptist in Woking. The kid got so inspired, she went on to do criminology at university in Winchester. And I've met her parents and everything, and they're going to take me down to her graduation at Winchester Uni. Oh, yeah. that's so nice. So as a yoga practicing vegetarian, this is what like warms my heart now. 
Wow, what a <laughs> life. What a life. Look, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being oh, part of Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. I appreciate it. No, for being yeah. part of my first Real Talk here at Shoreditch House. But um, can we, I know there's, only, there's a small crowd, but if we can give a big round of This programme was brought to you by Soho House and Radio Wolfgang. It was hosted by me, Eleanor Conway, and featured Sean Atwood. Thank you.